Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenore Walters, and joining me today is Taha Lokanwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Udit Garg, Head of Wealth Management at Sun Global Investments. The UK equity market has historically been one of the best areas to get attractive and plentiful dividends. But in recent years, a dividend-paying culture has been developing in other regions, which have not traditionally been associated with income, such as Asia. Udit, why is Asia becoming a better area for equity income? More and more companies are in the mature stage of business um, in Asia. So 2025 years, Asia has been the hunting ground for new investors looking for uh, greener pastures of investment. And wealth creation has been on a stupendous uh, stage uh, in in Asia. Uh, An educated population, educated large population in Asia has obviously uh, fueled uh, this need. And hence, we see more and more uh, equity generated income coming out of uh, Asia. One thing I noticed was that one of the main regional benchmarks, MSCI AC Asia Pacific X Japan Index, to give it its name, only has a dividend yield of about 2.6%. So if dividends are increasing in Asia, why is this not reflected in the benchmark? Well, a very good question. Uh, the, uh, the MSCI Asia Pacific Index has a growth bias, and uh, as a result of which um, we have a lower growth yield, sorry, uh, income yield. Uh, but if you see the growth parameters, it's given approximately 15% over the last five years and uh, a 10% return even in 2018, which is quite a good return. Added to that is the uh, multiples at which the indexes uh, in Asia um, are, are priced at today. And, uh, for example, India is at 28 versus a 23 in the U.S. and a 17 in the FTSE, which makes it uh, fairly clear that uh, the, the indexes are more... Uh, have a growth growth bias. Now, presumably you need to obviously do your research and drill down to find where these good dividends are. So which countries and which sectors in Asia are particularly good for equity income? So as countries, uh, China, Hong Kong, India have been uh, on the forefront. Hong Kong is probably the most developed market, the Hang Seng. But in terms of sectors, financials, information technology, consumer durables and communication seem to be the four leading sectors across these countries. Uh, case in point, one of the most famous names coming out of Asia is Alibaba, which is uh, the Asian competition to Amazon. And that is a classic case. And, and Tencent, again, a very, very large Chinese company. Uh, if you look at India, one of the largest companies in the world today is, is Reliance Industries, which is now so much, so well diversified that uh, it shows exactly which way uh, the local markets are headed. Okay. Um, So how do um, income-paying Asian equities compare to UK equity income? So uh, UK dividend yields are higher and uh, it translates from the fact that the Asian companies are not very mature in terms of growth. So they end up plowing back a lot of their income back in their business, which leads them to a lower and much, much lesser dividend yield. However, their investment goes back as capex into research and and development, which is helping them grow their businesses in general. Okay. Now, obviously, there's some differences. So, you know, our listeners are probably familiar with risks of UK equity income, but what risks should investors bear in mind before putting their money into funds that have exposure to Asian equities? So, uh, Asia, like, is is a unique continent. It's it's got a great mixture of 
all religions. So geopolitical risks are among the first risk you have to look at uh, with Asia. Uh, besides that, there's a big factor of currency risk because interest rates, the way they're moving in the Western world, have a direct impact on the currencies uh, in emerging markets and Asia remains one of the emerging market uh, hub. These uh, changes have a cyclical business impact, which again is seen as a big risk. And then the final word would be a political risk because of the instability across the uh, the Asian countries. Um, the Arab Spring was a classic case which saw so many changes. And um, while India and China remain fairly stable as, as geographies from a political angle, but that remains a very large risk. So bearing these risks in mind, um, what kind of investor could consider having exposure to Asian equity income? So when we understand a profile of an average investor, we normally categorize them as a moderate in the middle, but a conservative or an aggressive investor. So people having an Asia flavor in their portfolios would normally tend to be aggressively moderate or definitely aggressive. That means they have a longer time uh, horizon. They have uh, the objective of diversification in terms of currency, in terms of sectors, in terms of countries in their mind. And they want to participate in the high growth of a, say, of, of a geography which is bound to do well over a certain period of time. Okay, thank you, Udit. Some really useful points. And see this week's funds news for more on Asian equity income and some funds with which to access it. There are an increasing number of funds which invest in renewables energy infrastructure, such as wind farms and solar parks, including a number of investment trusts. Taha, why have renewables energy infrastructure funds grown in number and popularity? Hi, Lino. Uh, there's quite a, a few reasons for this, and uh, I'll run through them. But um, definitely the starting point is the yields that these uh, investment trusts offer. So I'm sure we've talked about many times in the past, quantitative easing and uh, all of that has driven down bond yields. Um, so people trying to seek income from fixed income and bonds, they just haven't, it hasn't been as rewarding, for, especially for the risk you have to take. Equities are yielding well, but, you know, people want diversification. So if you look at these these trusts, so like general infrastructure, the average trust there in the sector is, is yielding 4.7. In renewables, it's, it's yielding 4.8. You compare that to equity income, global income is yielding 3.7 and UK equity income is yielding about 4.3. So you can already see you get quite a bit, quite a big jump in yield for investing in these types of trusts. Now, combine that with capital growth. So um, renewables, the AIC renewable infrastructure sector, five-year NAV returns is 53 and share price total returns is 60. Compare that to the FTSE All-Share, that's 36.5. So you can already see that you're getting a better yield and better growth. But more importantly, on top of that, is the correlation you're getting. So these, um, these types of investment trusts, they don't, um, they don't follow the same kind of up and down volatility that you get in the, in the equity market. Just to show some examples. Um, so correlation works between minus 1 and 1. And uh, if it's 1, that means it's perfectly correlated. That means it goes up and down in exactly the same way. So the AIC uh, sector average correlation with the FTSE All Share is only 0.44, which is actually quite uh, it's actually quite good. Um, so they're you know they're deemed to be safer. They've got better volatility, diversification yields. You know you combine all this together, you can see entirely why they've become become so popular recently. An attractive package. Now you recently met the manager of a renewables infrastructure investment trust. Uh, which one was this, and what exactly does it invest in? So I met the um, Renewable Infrastructure Group, and it's ticket as TRIG, T-R-I-G, uh, and I was speaking to Richard Crawford. This infrastructure trust is quite interesting. It buys and runs renewable energy 
generation plants. So that's um, generally solar plants and onshore wind farms. It's dual managed, so it's managed by Infrared Capital Partners and Renewable Energy Systems. And that's, that's quite an interesting. I'm, I'm not sure if it's unique, but it's definitely an interesting way in which the trust is run because Infrared, um, they run the investment side, so they do the financial risk, they find the right plants, they find the, the right assets, and they, they manage the price and the costing and the investing. And then Renewable Energy Systems, actually, they operate the plants. So they go in after it's been bought and they take it over and they, they kind of manage the energy generation. So how do these assets generate the returns? So this is, uh, again, quite interesting. It's not um, your traditional investment trust where, you know, it's buying and selling and making a profit. What it actually does is it's a revenue-based model rather than capital gains. So it doesn't sell assets, but it um, it generates electricity from the plants and it either does one of three things. It either receives a subsidy from the government in the country that it's operating in to run that plant and kind of help countries meet their renewable energy targets. It either gets a government-backed price to sell that energy or electricity back into the grid with that country, or it just sells it at market rate. And so roughly subsidy or government-backed revenue accounts for about two-thirds of the investment trust revenue, and about one-third comes from kind of selling electricity and energy back into the market. Okay. Now, Renewables Infrastructure Group has actually um, changed its strategy in recent years. And what's it done? It's quite a big shift. Um, Less so in terms of what it's doing in terms of its model. So it's still generating electricity and and kind of banking revenue. But it's been moving away from the UK. It was very UK heavy in the the past. Uh, But now it's sort of moved towards France, Sweden, Ireland. It now has 28% of its um, kind of assets in non-UK assets. And there's a, a few reasons for this is that the UK generally has actually changed its subsidy model over time. You know, governments have changed and we've had two elections in the past uh, past decade. And um, they've actually shifted subsidy away from solar and away from onshore wind farms to offshore wind farms. Now, the person I spoke to, uh, Richard Crawford, who works for Infrared Capital, he was saying that actually offshore wind farms are a lot more difficult to um, kind of manage the returns and the revenue than, than the other two. So they've shifted away to find better subsidies in, in, in Sweden and France and Ireland for onshore wind farms and solar plants as well. Udit, do you think that renewables energy infrastructure funds, such as the one we've been talking about, renewables infrastructure, are a good way for investors to get income? Well, they are. Um, although uh, the dividend yields in uh, FTSE 250, for example, uh, is, is not very far off, but an average of 45 to 5% is uh, fairly manageable from these kind of investments. Okay, so they produce an attractive yield, but are there any other reasons why you might want to consider one of these funds? Well, yes, there are long-term growth benefits of investing in such um, such asset classes, as we call them, uh, besides fulfilling uh, personal and ethical investing objectives. Uh, the government also promotes these investments, and a lot of such investments are normally rolled up in uh, EIS schemes, which gives uh, implicit tax benefits to investors. Okay. Now, we've been discussing lots of nice things about these investments, but I think we all know that um, with investments, it's never one side. There's always some sort of risk. So if you're going to invest in renewables energy infrastructure, what risks should you be prepared to take on? Well, as any um, greenfield, if I was to use the right word, uh, greenfield area is, uh, is uh, it's fraught with some risks. So uh, it's a cyclical business, most importantly, uh, highly dependent on fiscal policy of the governing political system. So policy changes happen fairly rapidly if there is a regime change at the centre. Besides this, they are very, very long term. And talking from the perspective of um, an EIS scheme, which which I've followed for some time, there's a high failure rate. 
because of the high high initial costs, high ongoing costs, and they're dependent again on uh, the government's uh, policy for sale or resale of electricity being produced. Okay, um, I suppose yeah. If you go via NIS, that's a, a whole uh, new level of risk and angle with this area. Just thinking about the renewables infrastructure investment trusts again. Yeah, they have risks, but they offer high income. Do you think their high income is worth their risks? Well, it's always uh, a two-way side. Um, it's the tax efficient structure because the EIS gives you a lot of benefits. Uh, if you take that into account, most investors don't end up losing money. But as I said, the failure rate in these structures mm. is very high. What about the investment trusts? Because obviously they're um, a lot less risky than, than the EIS. I mean, are, the, they, are, they, are they worth the high, you know, they have a high income? Would you say they're worth the risks? Well, they are considering the current scenario in which we still get almost close to zero in the banks. And uh, if you end up going to a, a good entity, a good investment trust, which has had a good pedigree of running such such investments, it's definitely worth taking the call. Obviously, they're not right for everyone. So, I mean, for clients who are seeking a high income, just generally seeking a high income, um, what other investment areas do you favour? So mature developed markets uh, will offer higher yields in terms of dividends. So if investors were to look at stocks, for example, uh, in the US, in the UK and Europe, which have a reasonably good record of giving uh, consistent dividends, that's a good income strategy. From the UK perspective, the, the FTSE 100 has a lot of interesting names and those are something which um, investors can look at. Okay. I mean, this is obviously the conservative end of the equity market, but it's not risk-free. So what are the risks of these areas? Well, uh, the risks attached to such investments are mostly macroeconomic and uh, because they are developed um, markets as such, um, a potential change in the global economic scenario, for example, the change in rates in the US would have a cascading effect across the globe. Those kind of risks would impact these industries besides the business cycles, which are, of course, part of every industry. Okay. Now, for investors who are prepared to take on these risks, um, are there any funds you particularly like for getting exposure to developed market equities? Well, normally uh, funds are chosen based on an investor profile. But in in every um, segment of investment, there are market leaders. There are big names, Artemis Income, for example, uh, Fundsmith for equities. But I would not uh, be able to give a specific list on this um, on this forum because, as I said, they are very, very uh, bespoke for most investors. Okay. Uh, thank you, Udit. Some um, really good suggestions. Thank you. Uh, individual savings accounts, or ISAs for short, have been a popular way for investors to hold assets in a tax-efficient environment. But in recent years, investors' preferred tax wrapper of choice has been pensions. Taha, why is this? So there's a there's a few reasons, but it, it certainly goes back to uh, what has now commonly been called pension freedoms. And this was rules that came in in 2015 that basically changed the way in which investors could use their personal pensions and their workplace pensions. Before, you had to um, either you, you had to use your assets to generally just buy an annuity, an insurance contract that provides income in retirement. But now you can you can basically do whatever you want. You can take it as cash. You can use income drawdown. You can still buy an annuity if you want. But anyway, they made pensions a lot more attractive. 
Uh, and then this combined with another rule that came in shortly afterwards, which was uh, related to inheritance tax. And that meant that your SIP, your self-invested personal pension, would actually fall outside of your taxable estate uh, on death, which means that for people who want to pass investments and cash onto uh, their children, grandchildren or, the, or their partners, the SIP is uh, an incredible product for that. And it's, it's worth looking at how much investor behavior has changed over time. So in 2013, which was the year before the rules were announced, fund sales from ISAs were 40% higher than pensions. In 2014, the, the, the announcement was made in March 2014, but by the end of that year, they were very equal. So the, the sales into funds from ISAs and pensions were the same. By 2015, when the rules came in, pensions were 57% higher. So that you, you see this sharp change. And by 2018, sales from pensions were five times the amount that came out of ISAs. So there's been a, a huge shift in the way uh, investors have been using these two products. Okay, but why should investors not neglect ISAs, even if they think pensions are more attractive? Um, well, I mean, you can absolutely understand the appeal of, of pensions and necessarily should always be one versus the other. But there are just, ISAs have such inbuilt flexibility, they are easy to use, they're easy to access. You know, sometimes they have better tax advantages for investing, perhaps not upfront compared to pensions, but there's definitely inbuilt just their ability to shield you from tax as you grow your, your portfolio. Also, you know, they have the flexibility of being able to take income out um, or take assets out whenever you need. They're better for emergencies. They're better for flexible investors. And, you know, a, a pension obviously locks away your capital until you're at least 55. So, you know, there is, there's something you can do there. Also something called better nicer. If you have any assets outside of your SIP or your ISA, you can actually sell it into your ISA and shield future capital gains from tax. So that's a, diff a better thing that an ISA has that a SIP doesn't have. Okay, so um, what are some of the situations in which an ISA can be helpful? The biggest one is is income, income takers. It has It's the biggest advantage an ISA has over a SIP. If you're investing for income or if you're investing because you're going to take income, it definitely could be more tax efficient to use an ISA to mitigate income tax than it, um, than it is to get tax relief up front for the SIP because any money you take out of an ISA is never, ever subjected to tax. So you don't get capital gains tax, you don't get income tax, you, there is no tax from any of the assets that you use within the ISA and that is an incredible advantage. Oh, they're also exempt from and that includes dividend tax um, and the allowance for dividend tax has, has been cut down to £2,000. So if you have income from funds, shares and trusts in a SIP or even outside of a tax wrapper, they will be subjected to tax, whereas an ISA isn't. Um, house buying as well. Um, there are currently two products on offer to help you try and buy uh, as a first time buyer. That's a lifetime ISA and help to buy ISA, although the latter is going to be phased out from November. So that's worth noting. If you're saving for a deposit... These products can be very beneficial. You, you get government support with that. It kind of helps solve that very big debate you have when you're younger is whether you should put money into a pension or whether you should save for a property. And actually, these ISAs actually help you kind of manage your savings while saving for a property at the same time. For whom might a pension be more attractive? Uh, this, is quite a, 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 this is quite a big cohort of people. If you're a higher earner, um, you're definitely... If you're a higher earner, the, the upfront tax relief you get on pensions are incredible, especially if you're earning somewhere between 100 and £120,000 because after £120,000, your pensions tax relief actually starts to taper off and it reduces for every pound you earn more. The upfront tax relief is very good and it's also quite likely that at some point a government is going to come in and cut that because it's, well, you, I think it's fair to say it's far too generous. I think Philip Hammond actually described it as eye-wateringly expensive. So that's the kind of tone that this tax relief is getting from the government at the moment. Uh, a more left-wing government would definitely um, look at that. 
to fill your boots while you can. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, just to just to show how beneficial it can be. If you want to invest ten thousand pounds via an ISA, for an ISA that will cost you ten thousand pounds. But because of the way tax relief works, if you want to put ten thousand pound into a SIP, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, that will only actually cost you six thousand pounds. And if you're an additional rate taxpayer, that will only cost you five and a half thousand pounds. So you can see how generous this tax relief is when you're in when you're investing via pension. Thank you, Taha. Some really helpful tips. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website for more on equity income funds. Taha's full interview with Renewables Infrastructure Group's manager, and when to use ISAs and pensions in your financial planning. Thank you for listening, and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.